Hello, and welcome to Sharing Our Journey, a podcast from Harrodsburg Baptist Church, where we're all about sharing our journey toward Jesus. Before we hear from Dr. Paul Gibson, we'd like to invite you to take that journey with us. To find out more, follow us on social media at HBC Harrodsburg or visit harrodsburgbaptist.org. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you very soon. Hey everyone, we are glad that you're back with us today, worshiping with us with our radio broadcast or listening to our HBC podcast. We are going to continue in our journey through the story. We are in chapter 7 this week, the chapter titled The Battle Begins, and it's covering the book of Joshua. And we know that last week we left off with Moses' death uh, as the children of Israel are preparing to go into the promised land. We know that after Moses uh, passed away that the mantle of leadership was passed on to Joshua. And we're going to look at today how Joshua led Uh, the children of Israel, uh, into the promised land, to take the promised land, the land that the Lord had promised to give them, going all the way back uh, to his forefather Abraham. But as we talk about uh, Joshua and the children of Israel going into the promised land, and as we look at this chapter titled, The Battle Begins, I want to talk about a battle that we're in right now as the church. And I don't mean Harrodsburg Baptist Church, I mean the church in general Uh, Christ followers in general, a battle that we are either in or a battle that we possibly might be facing very soon. And here's what I mean. Many of the pastors and the Christians uh, that I know, that I talk to uh, in my life, uh, are concerned about things like the Equality Act, a bill that is being looked at by Congress that might uh, pressure the church to Uh, sacrifice their biblical standards for marriage and family. So many of the people that I talk to that are either pastors or Christ followers are concerned. Uh, They're asking, are we going to be able to stand for what we believe in when it comes to marriage and family? That's one thing that that, uh, Christ followers and pastors might be facing when it comes to our culture. Another thing that we're confronting is how uh, our generations uh, are changing. And, And here's what I mean by that. Generation Z is the latest generation to be born, somewhere between 1999 and 2015. So we're talking uh, basically those that are between the ages of uh, 21 all the way down uh, to 5 to 6. In this generation, Generation Z, 6-year-olds to 21-year-olds, 42% of Gen Zers identify as having no faith. Now I want to say that again. 42% of the generation between the ages of 16 to 21, more specifically those uh, researched between the ages of 14 to 21. So 42% of 14 to 21-year-olds right now identify as having no faith. That means that if you're in the high school, if you're walking around on a college campus, if you uh, see a young 20-something out pumping gas, or you know if you, if you go to a ball game and you watch a high school student, or you see a bunch of high school students, almost a half of those students or almost a half of those younger 20-somethings would identify as having no faith. What kind of battle are we in when it comes to being a Christ follower in our current culture? When we're concerned about things like the Equality Act, when we are facing the reality that 
the youngest generation right now, almost 50% of them claim to have no faith, not just Christian faith, but no faith at all. You see, I think we are in a battle, much like Joshua was, much like the children of Israel were when they crossed into the Promised Land, but I want to be very clear here. It's not the kind of battle that's going to require aggressive weapons. Now I want to say that again. The type of battle that we are in is not the type of battle that's going to require aggressive weapons. Another thing I want to say is that we have a tendency, if we're not careful as Christ followers, to look out at the culture, see things we don't like, and lament those. And that's okay to lament those, to grieve the parts of culture that we may not agree with or to grieve the parts of culture that intimidate us. But that doesn't mean we run from the battle. You see, we see the world as it is. And if you're a confessing Christ follower, we see the world as it is. And I think we have to understand that Jesus calls us to participate with him in bringing heaven to earth. Not to run from the world, not to disassociate from the world, but instead to engage the world so that the world might look more like heaven. And here's why I say that. Think about the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. A present tense prayer where Jesus taught his followers to pray that the kingdom would come now. So yes, just like Joshua and the children of Israel were in battles, we are in a battle to make our current situation look more like the kingdom of God. A situation where we are concerned about things like the Equality Act and a situation where we are confronted with truths like the youngest generation right now, only or at least 42% identify as having no faith. So how do we engage this battle? Instead of running from the battle, how do we engage the battle? Well, we're going to look at uh, this chapter, The Battle Begins, chapter 7, and we're going to learn a few things. We're going to learn that the Lord redeems us to action. He doesn't redeem us to sit on the sidelines. Again, we're going to learn that our battle weapons are not what we think they might be. And then we're going to learn that as we engage in the battle to bring heaven to earth, we must daily choose whom we will serve. So we're going to learn that the Lord redeems us to action. We're going to learn that our battle weapons are not what we might think they are. And we're going to learn that every day we have to wake up and choose whom we are going to serve. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn over to Joshua chapter 1. If you have the story in front of you, I encourage you to turn to page 89. I'm going to be reading from Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, and on page 89 through 90 of the story. Joshua chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the river Euphrates, all the high tide country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give to them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. 
Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have not I commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. The Lord is telling Joshua, Joshua, you are the new leader. Get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give you and I'm about to give my people. You see, at this point in the story, we know that the children of Israel were delivered from Egypt and they were called to aggressively take the land the Lord promised to them. So here are the people of God, redeemed out of Egypt by God, and He redeems them to take the land. He calls them to action. He calls Joshua to action as the leader. He tells Joshua, be strong and courageous. The Hebrew there literally means be strong and stalwart. Stand firm, Joshua. The Lord tells the people, I will never leave you or forsake you. The Hebrew is literally saying, I shall not let go of you. God is telling his people, I am holding on to you. Now go. And I think that's what we need to hear today. As we confront the culture we're in, God is not calling us to be passive. He doesn't redeem us to laziness, but He calls us to action. He calls us to be His hands and feet to the world so we may be overwhelmed by things we see. We may be intimidated by things like the Equality Act. God is not calling us to step back. God is calling us to be aggressive and go. Be His light in a dark world. Share His hope to a world that is struggling with hopelessness. Go make a difference in the life of somebody in the name of Jesus so that they may know that Jesus is real and so that they may turn to Him for their salvation. You see, God is holding on to us. If you're a Christ follower, God is holding on to you. And He's calling us to establish His kingdom here and now. Not to shirk away from responsibility, not to back up, not to do what the spies did last week that we studied, to cower in fear but to go and to be His light. If this world is going to change, we can't be idle. We have to share the gospel. We have to share the good news of Jesus that through His life, death, and resurrection, God is reconciling the world back to Himself. And you may be listening today and you may be thinking, Paul, that's good and all. I hear you. I believe that, that God wants us to partner with Him to bring heaven to earth, to bring His kingdom to earth, but it's just so hard. What if I don't know what to do? Well, I encourage you to go back and look in Joshua chapter 1. Allow the words that washed over Joshua to wash over you. Only be strong and courageous. Obey the law. Keep the law. You know, one of the reasons we struggle to follow the Lord is simply because we don't engage the Lord's story. We don't read Scripture with the hunger for the Lord to show up and teach us what it means to follow Him. And if you're listening, please understand, I'm not saying that to shame you. I'm saying that hopefully to encourage you to know that God is writing His story and you have a major role to play in that story. And I pray that as we walk through the story, as we study the story of the Lord, that you fall more in love with it, which means that you fall more in love with, with Jesus and that you give Jesus a chance to work in your heart so that you may go 
be his salt and light to the world so that you may go and play the character that he wants you to play in his story. But we can't sit on the sidelines. He redeems us to action. Just as he told Joshua and the people, be strong and courageous, be strong and stalwart, he is telling us to be strong and courageous. So you might be listening today and you know that the Lord is working in your heart. He's calling you to do something, but you keep pushing back because you feel like you may be made fun of or you feel like it's just not right or you feel like you just don't have the strength to do it. But you know the Lord's calling you to do it. I pray that you will be strong and courageous. You know, as we engage the battle that we're in, the battle to fight the evil forces of this world and to bring heaven to earth, I want you to know that our battle weapons are not what we think they might be. Our battle weapons are not what we think they might be. You know, many of you know that I'm a, a big Star Wars fan. And in The Last Jedi, Luke Skywalker is uh, training uh, his protege, Ray. And at one point he looks at her and he says, Amazing. Every word of what you just said was wrong. And I think if we're not careful, we get our calling to be salt and light to the world wrong. When the Lord tells us to be strong and courageous, He's not calling us to physically attack those that don't believe in Him. He's not calling us to verbally accost those who may believe something different than we are. He's not calling us to attack, whether it be verbally and definitely not physically, someone who may not believe what we believe when it comes to marriage and family. Clubs, pitchforks, and guns are not the weapons that the Lord is calling us to use. I want to read to you the weapons that the Lord is calling us to use in this battle. This is from Ephesians 6. And and we're not there in the story yet, so I encourage you to to just listen and allow these words to wash over you. Ephesians 6.10 Finally be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now let me stop here. I want to read that again. The Apostle Paul, inspired by the Lord, said, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. I want to be very clear here. Our struggle as people who follow Christ is not against those who do not follow Christ. They're lost. They need the gospel. We're called to engage them. Our struggle is not against any person or entities that might believe differently than we do when it comes to what the makeup of a biblical family is. Those people need to hear the gospel. They need to hear the biblical definition of marriage. But our struggle is not against them. God calls us to go to them. God calls us to love them. Our struggle is not against a person who might believe something different politically than we believe, than we follow. They're not our enemy. And I want to say this. Right now in this age of COVID, churches have been turned on churches because members are leaving and swapping and going to different churches. Brothers and sisters, our battle is not against another church. It's definitely not against another church. This community is full of great churches. And and as a pastor here, I am honored to work with so many great brothers and sisters who call themselves pastors and leaders in their churches. 
Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And one of the ways that Satan is tripping us up is because he is causing us or he is challenging us or he is tricking us to believe that our struggle and our battle is against another person or is against another physical entity when it is not. Our battle is not against the rulers, the authorities. I'm sorry, our battle is not against flesh and blood. But it is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We've got to make sure we're fighting the right enemy. And someone who believes differently than we are, they're not our enemy. If they're far from God, our calling is to go love them and to share with them the gospel so that they see Jesus for the sacrificial Savior that He is. It's not to vilify them. It's not to uh, make them out to be the evil one because they are not. We're fighting dark forces. We're fighting rulers. We're fighting authorities that we cannot see. Let me read to you Ephesians 6, 13. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Our real enemy is the evil one who manipulates politics, who manipulates social media, who manipulates Hollywood. And how, do we, how are we to engage our, uh, the battle with, with the evil one and with the dark forces of this world. We've got to put on the full armor of God. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of peace, the peace of the gospel, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. And I wish I had time to go into great detail in regards to what each of, of these different pieces of the armor represent, but I want to point something out to you. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, those are all defensive uh, pieces of armor that allow us to hold our armor together and they allow us to uh, take incoming uh, fire. But there is one weapon that is a, that, it, that, that or there's one piece of the armor that's a proactive weapon. But, it, but it's not the, there are two, I'm sorry, there, there are two weapons of the armor that are proactive, that are not defensive. And I really encourage you to pay attention and to hear what they are. The sword of the Spirit and prayer. The sword of the Spirit and prayer. If we're going to be aggressive in changing this world for Christ, if we're going to be aggressive in the, this world looking like the kingdom of God, if we're going to engage this battle appropriately, the two offensive weapons that we're going to use are Scripture and prayer. 
And how do we use Scripture as an offensive weapon? Uh, the Psalms tells us that we will hide our word in our heart so that we might not sin against you. Knowing the Scripture, studying the Scripture, allowing God to speak to us through the Scripture will then allow us to live Scripture out. So when You've heard me say this before, so that when the very person that might cause our blood to boil is the very same person Christ calls us to love. That's a weapon, a weapon of love. When we see something that, that we know is not biblical and we're intimidated to take an appropriate stand, we are reminded of the words of Joshua, be strong and courageous, and, and we use the words of Scripture to give us the courage and the strength to take our stand. So we study the Word in order to understand how to stand for Christ. And then the second offensive weapon is prayer. Verse 18, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Here's something I'm, I'm learning. And, and Lord knows I've got so much more to learn. If I spend time in prayer asking the Lord to take care of a difficult situation, I find that a lot of times He works things out before I ever need to take action. So, as we are engaging this upside-down world, as we are engaging a world uh, where we're concerned about things like the Equality Act and where we're concerned about losing the youngest generation, falling away from God, put on the full armor of God with the understanding that our two offensive weapons are His Word and prayer. You know, there's one more thing I want to say. We can engage the battle. We can use the right weapons. But we still have to wake up every day and choose to serve the Lord. Now I want to say that again. We can decide to engage in battle. We can choose the right weapons, the, repen, the weapons of, of, of Scripture. Not to beat somebody over the head with Scripture, but to learn how to walk in love according to Scripture. And, and we can pray. But we still have to wake up every day and choose how we're going to serve. Joshua 24, verses 14 and 15. This is on page 101 of the story. Joshua said to the people, Now fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your ancestors, the ones they worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Friends, if we're going to win this battle, we as a church, we as families that follow the Lord, we as individuals, we must choose every day whom we will serve. And if we're serving the Lord, if we're serving the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if we are serving Christ, we have to ask ourselves, do we talk about Jesus? Do we live as if we believe Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are real? Do we discuss Jesus with our friends in today's world? Do we wake up every day and pray the same prayer that we prayed long ago when we first gave our lives to the Lord? Lord, today my life is for you. 
every day. In the words of Joshua, choose this day whom you're going to serve. And every day as we engage a culture that I think will become more and more um, strange to Christians, every day we have to recommit that we're going to follow the Lord. We're going to follow His law. We're going to use the weapon of Scripture not to uh, beat somebody over the head, but to follow the law of love. Holding on to our faith in Christ while loving someone, again, who may be the very person that, that aggravates us, the very person that fires us up, but loving them because Christ compels us to love Him, and we know that because His Word tells us so. And then prayer. And, and I think, again, that prayer is so underused in our churches. And the way I want to end this sermon today is as you hopefully are a Christ follower, and if you're not a Christ follower, I encourage you, wherever you are, to just throw up your hand and say, God, I want to follow you. I believe Jesus. I believe his death uh, takes away my sins. I want to follow you. If you are a Christ follower, I encourage you right now to take a few moments and go to the Lord in prayer. And you, your prayer might look like, Lord, I've been sitting on the sidelines. You're calling me to battle. Give me the courage to, to step up. Or your prayer may be, Lord, I've kind of been a jerk. I've been using Scripture as a weapon to beat people over the head versus using Scripture to inspire me to love and to live like you love it and live. Or, or maybe you need to confess to the Lord that, yeah, you want to follow Him, but, but every day your focus inches a little bit more away from Him and you need to wake up every morning and start praying that prayer, Lord, today I live for You. I pray that as we realize the Lord calls us to battle, that we know that we're not redeemed to sit on the sidelines, that the weapons we're to use in this battle are not weapons like we would possibly expect to use, that prayer is one of the greatest underused weapons. And then lastly, I pray that we wake up every day and choose to serve the Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you for joining us for sharing our journey. If you'd like to join us for worship, we come together on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Harrodsburg Baptist Church. 312 South Main Street, Harrodsburg, Kentucky. For more information, follow us on social at HBC Harrodsburg or visit harrodsburgbaptist.org. As you go, we pray that you will share your journey toward Jesus with others. May the love of the Father, the grace of Jesus, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. Hey, HBC, and those of you who are listening, uh, good morning, good afternoon, good night. Uh, wherever you're listening, thank you for tuning in to either our radio broadcast uh, and our podcast. Uh, I'm Dr. Paul Gibson. I'm the pastor here at HBC. Got some really exciting things going on at our church, and it's just a pleasure and a gift to be um, 
the, the senior pastor here, but sometimes I like to refer to myself as the head cheerleader just because it's so cool to see all the amazing things um, that you all, if you're part of our church, uh, that you all are doing. If you're not part of our church, I hope you are part of a church uh, in the Mercer County area. There are a lot of great churches out there. Uh, get involved in one if you're not involved in ours. And if you're listening from somewhere outside of Mercer County or maybe even outside of Kentucky, uh, my encouragement to you is find a church, get involved, and make a difference in the kingdom of God. Well, again, thank you for tuning in today. Um, we have been working through the story uh, in 2021. It's an abridged version of Scripture. It's word-for-word word Scripture. Uh, it's just uh, it, miss, it, it has some of the segments of Scripture absent. And the purpose is so that uh, we all can learn the larger narrative of Scripture together, look at the main themes that exist from Genesis to Revelation, so that we can see how God has been working since Genesis uh, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, to reconcile the world to Himself or to redeem the world. And um, another question we've been asking as we have been studying the story is not only what are some of the larger themes uh, in the story of Scripture, but also how do we fit in? How do we fit into the story that God is writing? So let's review. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time today, we're going to briefly review where we have been in the story of Scripture. If you have been uh, with us throughout 2021, I hope you uh, enjoy and are refreshed in our um, assisted in remembering where we have been so far as we have covered the story. So I started out looking at creation, and then the following week we looked at Abraham, and then we talked about Joseph, and then we talked about the children of Israel being delivered from Egypt, and then we talked about Mount Sinai and how the children of Israel received the Ten Commandments, and then uh, a couple of weeks ago we looked at how the children of Israel squandered their opportunity uh, to go into the uh, Promised Land. And then last week, we looked at Joshua. Well, today, we are going to look uh, at the book of Judges. Uh, the title uh, of the chapter that we're in in the story is called A Few Good Men and Women, and it's covering the book of Judges. Before we do that, uh, as we have briefly reviewed where we have been in the story of Scripture, I want to share with you uh, what it's like uh, for adults and families to make an effort to learn the whole story of Scripture together. So what have been some of the fun conversations that have possibly been happening uh, within the homes of HBC, or maybe you're not an HBCer, but you're doing the story with us. Maybe some of these conversations are similar to what you have been experiencing at home. So here are some fun descriptions um, from a few kids regarding the story I once read from another pastor describing what it's like for families to go through the story together. So these are descriptions from kids regarding what they're learning about the story. So one kid said, Moses died before he ever reached Canada. Then Joshua led the Hebrews in the battle of Jericho. That's funny. Uh, one little a kid said, the seventh commandment is thou shalt not admit adultery. That's funny as well. Uh, another little kid said, the Egyptians were all drowned in the desert. Afterwards, Moses went up on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Amendments. One more kid said, Jesus was born because Mary had an immaculate contraption. <laughs> That's pretty good. Uh, and this is probably my favorite with my marriage and family counseling background. One kid uh, said, Christians only have one spouse. It's called monotony. Ha ha. So I, I pray that conversations have been had in your home and that you and your family are learning the story together. 
So as we look at the chapter titled A Few Good Men and Women, as we cover the book of Judges, let's talk about what we're going to learn today. We're going to learn, we are going to learn another cycle. A few weeks ago, we looked at the cycle of when we say, whoa, God says go, and then he puts on a show. And, and then a few weeks ago, we also looked at this cycle of deliverance, uh, wilderness, promised land. Well, today we're going to look at another cycle that exists in Scripture, and it's the cycle of sin, repentance, and deliverance. Sin, repentance, and deliverance. So with the sin part comes evil and punishment. When we sin, we do evil, we're going to be punished. When we repent, we cry out. And when we cry out to the Lord, He delivers us. Now, in the book of Judges, we're going to see that the way he delivered the children of Israel was that he would send a judge who would act as a deliverer. And we're going to learn later in this sermon that Jesus is our ultimate deliverer. So, sin, repentance, and deliverance. So let's look at the first part uh, of this cycle. Um, With sin, there's evil and punishment. So if you have your copy of the story, turn to page 103. Uh, If you have a regular Bible in front of you, I encourage you to Uh, turn to Judges chapter 2. Now we're going to be moving through the book of Judges a lot uh, today uh, or this morning or this night depending on when you're listening. So keep your Bible open, keep your story open and we're going to do a little Bible drill here. All right. so Judges 2 verses 10 through 14 or page 103 as we look at the first step in this cycle of evil and punishment. Judges 2.10 After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what He had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook Him and served Baals and the Ashtaroths. In His anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Now turn over to page 104, or Judges 3. Page 104, or Judges 3, verses 7 and 8. Verse 7. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishthaim, king of Aram Naharaim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. Now let me pause here. In Judges 2.11, we see, Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they served the Baals. In Judges 3.7, we see, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. Already we see in the book of Judges early on that there's this theme that the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord by serving pagan gods. Let's keep reading about sin and evil and punishment. Page 105, Judges 4, verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabon, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Herosheth, Hegoim. Verse 1 again of Judges 4. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Turn over to page 107 in the story. Judges 6, verse 1. Page 107, Judges 6, verse 1. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Again, we see the words, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and their punishment was, the Lord gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Page 112, or Judges 13, 1. 
page 112 in the story, or Judges 13.1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Four different passages. Judges 3, Judges, I'm sorry, five different passages. Judges 2, Judges 3, Judges 4, Judges 6, Judges 13. And what do we see? Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And what was their punishment? They were, deliver they were delivered into the hands of pagan kings. So understand that when we sin, and I'm going to talk about forgiveness in a minute, the Lord wants to forgive us, but it doesn't mean we will not suffer the consequences of our sin. And as we are going to read in a few minutes in Romans, Scripture says, for the wages of sin is death. Every time we commit evil, God is going to punish us. God is going to discipline us. And we see in the book of Judges that cycle happening again and again and again. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They were delivered into the hands of a pagan king. Praise the Lord that it doesn't stop with committing evil and punishment. He allows us to repent. He allowed the children of Israel to repent. And when we repent, we cry out to the Lord. So let's look at how the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Going back to page 104 in the story, or Judges 3, verse 9. Scripture says, But when they cried out to the Lord, He raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother who saved them. Page 105, Judges 4, verse 3. Because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Page 107, Judges 6, verse 6. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Page 113, Judges 4, verse 14. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. We see after the evil and punishment of Judges 3, of Judges 4, of Judges 6, and of Judges 14, the Israelites cried out for help. And the Lord responded by sending them a deliverer. Or the Lord responded by sending them a judge. But again, the book of Judges and the judges that are in the book of Judges are not judges like we think. They're not uh, courtroom judges. They are leaders. They are deliverers uh, that were used by the Lord to deliver the children of Israel um, from the predicaments they put themselves in through their sin and uh, their evil. So we've talked about uh, sin. We've talked about repentance or evil and punishment and then crying out. So now let's look at deliverance. Or let's specifically see how the Lord sent a judge, otherwise um, known as a deliverer, to rescue his people. Judges 2.6, page 104 of the story. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Page 104, Judges 3.9. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer. Page 105, Judges 4, verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth was leading Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go take with you ten thousand men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. Page 
I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Page 108, Judges 6, verse 14. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pages 118 and 119 in the story, Judges 16, 25 through 30. While they were in high spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. When they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, Put me where I can fill the pillars that support the temple so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there, and on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more and let me, with one blow, get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might, and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. Samson was sent to be a deliverer. Deborah was sent to be a deliverer. Othniel was sent to be a deliverer. And we see in Judges 2.16, it says that the Lord raised up judges. Again, that term judges uh, can be better translated that the Lord raised up a deliverer. You see, the children of Israel committed evil. They were punished. They cried out to the Lord. God heard their cry and he sent a deliverer. Again, it's the cycle of sin and punishment for the sin, repentance and deliverance. And I pray that you know that to this day, we continue to live out the same pattern of sin, repentance, and deliverance. We continue to live out the same pattern that God's people displayed in the Old Testament of sin, repentance, and deliverance. What about the pattern of sin? Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I wish I could take this verse out of Scripture. I wish I could look in the mirror and go, Ah, there's a guy who's never sinned. I can't do that. Because we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what does it mean to sin? Exactly what the children of Israel did. We know that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And they did evil in the eyes of the Lord because they turned to pagan gods. They turned to idols. So what is sin? Sin is to turn away from God and turn towards something else, to some idol that we run to instead of God. And N.T. Wright has a much uh, more detailed definition of how sin and idolatry go together in his theology. So if you're thinking about sin and realizing we all have fall short, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, what is it that you care so much about that you turn to for hope, peace, and joy instead of God. If sin means to turn away from God and turn towards something else to fulfill our needs and make that something else an idol, what is it that you care so much about that you turn to it for hope, peace, and joy instead of turning to God? So we all sin. But what about repentance? We know that the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. They repented. We have the opportunity to repent. Let me read the words of 1 John 1, 9. 
If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Oh, man. I want to read that one more time. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. What is repentance? According to 1 John 1, 9, repentance means we confess our sin. We turn away from whatever idol it is that we're running to instead of God. We confess our sin. We turn away from that sin and we turn back to God. And that's what the children of Israel did. They turned away from whatever idol they were pursuing. They turned away from the evil they were doing. And they turned back to God. So what is it today that you need to turn away from? What is it today that you need to turn away from? What is it in your life that you are holding up as a God, that you are holding up as an idol that's keeping you from instead pursuing God and running to God and following God? So we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. We have an opportunity to repent, but here's the catch. We need a deliverer. We need a judge, for lack of a better term. Again, not a courtroom-type judge, but I'm talking about an Old Testament-type judge, somebody that God would send to deliver us. Here's the amazing, beautiful, praise God truth. We have a deliverer. Let me read Romans 3.21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Oh, did you hear that? Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But man, it's so followed up by 24 And all are justified freely by by His grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Righteousness, according to verse 23, is given through faith in Jesus Christ. All are justified. Me, you, everyone can be justified freely by God's grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our deliverer. We get righteousness through His life, death, and resurrection. We get forgiveness of sins through His uh, life, death, and resurrection. We are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace that came through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So my question today, my big question today is this. What do you need to repent from? What are you, like the Old Testament Jews, putting up as an idol that's keeping you from pursuing God? Confess that, turn away from that idol, and run to Jesus. Because Scripture says that if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin. Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Now, maybe you're listening and you have a lot of questions about the Christian faith. Maybe you uh, have struggled to believe that Jesus is real. But there's something about this message today that's tugging at your heart 
And you want to believe in this idea of forgiveness. You want to believe in this idea that we can be forgiven, that you can be forgiven. Jesus is real. His death was real. His resurrection was real. And it's through his life, death, and resurrection that you can have forgiveness of sins. It's through his life, death, and resurrection that you can be made right with God. And I pray today, even in the midst of your doubts, that you give Jesus a chance by simply saying this, Jesus, I want to give you a chance. And see how God works in your heart. And if you have questions, you know, contact us here at the church, 859-734-2339. You can email me directly, paul at harrisburgbaptist.org. Or maybe you're closer to another pastor or you're closer to another church. Pursue that conversation with that pastor. Pursue that conversation with the church. And if you want to give Jesus a chance, give him a chance to be your deliverer. Let's all pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to record this podcast today. And Lord, I pray that you are working in the hearts and minds of those who are listening. Thank you, Jesus, for being our deliverer. And may we run to you. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, hey, hey, good morning, good afternoon, good night, wherever you may be listening uh, from as you're listening to this podcast brought to you by Harrodsburg Baptist Church. And if you are listening on 99.5, we thank you so much for tuning in with us today. I'm Pastor Paul Gibson. I'm the pastor of Harrodsburg Baptist Church. And if you have been listening over the last few weeks, you know that we are walking through the story, which is an abridged version of Scripture that purposely exists in order to cover the larger narrative, the larger story of Genesis to Revelation, God's redemption story, where he sends the ultimate hero, Jesus, to redeem us from our sins. But we're also looking at the story in order to understand where our stories fit into God's story. So you have the upper story or the larger story, and then you have the smaller stories or the lower stories, which are our stories as we wrestle with how do we fit into the story that God is writing. Well, today we are going to uh, cover chapter uh, number nine in the story, The Faith of a Foreign Woman. And we're going to be looking at uh, a very unique, romantic, fun book, which is the book of Ruth. And in order to be thinking about the story of Ruth, um, I want to talk to you about my top five favorite movies. You know, in no particular order, one of my favorite movies is Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. It's about a hero, a senator who was originally, I think, a Boy Scout troop leader. He gets placed in Washington as a senator, uh, as a replacement to a senator, I think, who passed away. And it's, a, it's this valiant story of Mr. Smith fighting the corruption in Washington and trying to show us that good men and good women can make a difference in politics. And then another favorite story of mine or favorite movie of mine is The American President. Again, it's another a movie that focuses on the presidency, and it's just a powerful portrayal, I think, uh, of how a president has to wrestle with uh, difficult decisions. Um, another movie that I like uh, is The Lion King. I remember uh, watching that in the theaters when it first came out and, and hearing that first stanza of, you know, I just, I just remember being captivated. Um, by the movie and the storyline and how um, Simba has to wrestle with uh, who he's created to be. And then the movie Hoosers, there's, there's nothing like an amazing small town story where a basketball team 
uh, not only goes on to win the state tournament, but where a basketball team actually uh, changes the city and changes the state through winning a championship. And then last but not least, probably my favorite movie of all time is a movie called Saving Mr. Banks. It's the story of how Walt Disney uh, worked with P.L. Travers to try to take the books based on the character Mary Poppins and turn them into a movie that we all love and know called Mary Poppins. And the reason I like that movie is because it just does an amazing job portraying the the energy and the enthusiasm and the ability for Walt Disney to have a vision and carry it all the way through. At the same time, uh, the story of P.L. Travers in the movie uh, also hits home for me a little bit. You know, we like movies. Um, we like stories. We like shows because the Bible is a story, very much like our favorite stories. And if you remember uh, English class, English class, uh, when you were in high school or college, you most likely learned about what is called the story pyramid. And um, I think all good stories, uh, like The Lion King, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, The American President, Hoosier Saving Mr. Banks, I think all good stories have to follow the story pyramid. And if you know anything about the story pyramid, I'm going to do my best to describe it to you here. Um, you know, the story pyramid starts with uh, the background or the introduction. That's where we learn the background of the characters. That's where we are introduced to the setting and the protagonist and the antagonist. Uh, and then uh, we have the rising action. And, and, and before the rising action, there's what is called the inciting incident. And the inciting incident is where the pro protagonist's world gets turned upside down. And then the, and the uh, rising action is how does the protagonist deal with the inciting incident. Then the rising action reaches its climax at the climax where the tension breaks and the inciting incident is kind of uh, resolved. Then you have the falling action where we catch the backstory after um, the climax is reached, after things kind of calm down, and then we see the resolution. How does the story end for the protagonist? Well, I think scripture uh, follows that storyline. I think the background is uh, Genesis uh, 1 through 11. I think the inciting incident is Genesis 12 when God calls Abraham to be a great nation and, and foreshadows the coming of Christ. I think the rising action of Scripture rises to the crucifixion. I think the climax of Scripture is the crucifixion because sin entering the world is taken care of by Jesus' death on the cross. Then we have the falling action, which I think is the New Testament. And the truth is we haven't reached the um, resolution yet because revelation has not yet happened. So we are in a story. We are in the biblical story because we're stuck somewhere between Jude and Revelation and just like um, uh, the characters in a movie, uh, characters in a story, I think we are characters in God's story and let me explain a little bit more. So if you have the story that we're studying, the Bible, turn over to page 90 because we're going to look at the story of Rahab. Turn over to page 90. If you have a regular copy of scripture, you want to turn over to Joshua chapter 2 verses 1 and 2. But I'm going to read page 90 on the story. And if you listen real well, really well, you can hear my, um, uh, you can hear, uh, my pages turning uh, as I'm also reading the story. So Joshua 2, verses 1 through 2, or page 90 on the story, middle of the page. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. I want to keep reading through verse 4, actually. 
The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. So Rahab lied. And the reason she lied, if you know anything about the story of Rahab, she lied to the king because she was moved by Yahweh. She was moved by the acts and the power of Yahweh, so that when, which is God. So that when the spies came into the promised land, Rahab knew that those spies were part of God's people. And Rahab feared the Lord. Rahab respected the Lord. So she hid the spies and lied to the king. Now, think back to uh, story. Not the story. Not scripture. But think, about, think back to any story that you like. And I think all great stories have it to be continued. And what I mean is, like, maybe you were watching on television, or you're watching on Netflix, or maybe you're watching a movie like Infinity War. You're looking at the clock. You can tell that the movie's kind of winding down because you're getting close to the allotted time on television or the allotted time on Netflix or Amazon Prime. And you're like, uh-oh, this story is not going to be resolved today. And then it builds to a climax, and you, climax and you, and you think that, that things are going to break in way of the protagonist. And you see the words to be continued. And if you're like me, you let out a scream because you want resolution. You want to know what's going to happen to the characters. So if you have your Bible, turn over to Joshua chapter 6, verse 24. Or turn over to page 93 in the story. And let's look at Rahab, this pagan woman who hid the spies because she feared God. Rahab actually has it to be continued. Page 93 at the bottom, or Joshua 6, 24 through 26. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her, because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And then Scripture says, and here's the to be continued, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. That was it. That's the last we heard of Rahab, this heroic a uh, pagan prostitute who hid the spies and actually assisted in God's plan to take the promised land. Now, I would think somebody that had such a significant role would have played more of a prominent star, uh, more of a prominent role in the history of Israel. But according to Joshua 6, we're told that she lives among the Israelites to this day. Now, pause. Let's go to chapter 9 in the story. And let's look at the story of Ruth. We've looked at the story of Rahab. Now let's look at the story of Ruth. Page 122 in the story, or Ruth 1, 16 through 18. Page 122 in the story, or Ruth 1, 16 through 18. Scripture says, But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God my God. For you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. If you haven't read this, uh, the chapter uh, 9 in the story, if you haven't read the book of Ruth, let me give you a little background. Ruth was Naomi's daughter-in-law, and uh, she lost her husband, Ruth lost her husband, when Naomi's son died. So in other words, Ruth lost a husband and Naomi lost a son. Um, 
and and then Naomi in this very heartbreaking story not only lost her her son that was married to Ruth she lost her other son and she lost her husband so Naomi decides to go back to her own people which are the Israelites Ruth was a pagan Moabite so there's this very dramatic scene in Ruth 1 where Naomi tells Ruth you need to stay here and tells her other daughter-in-law Orpha you need to stay here but Ruth is determined to go back with Naomi. And, and she says, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Again, doggedly determined to go with her former mother-in-law because there's this respect of God. And I encourage you to remember the respect of God that Rahab had. Two pagan women, Rahab a pagan prostitute, Ruth a pagan Moabite, have this fear of the Lord, have this respect of God, and they end up becoming part of God's people. When Ruth goes back to the land of Israel with Naomi, Ruth, in essence, becomes an Israelite. Now, Naomi, I'm going to fast forward here uh, with a little bit of the story. Ruth and Naomi have to eat, right? So, Naomi tells Ruth to go glean in a field. And to understand what that means, gleaning was basically an Old Testament law that required that when you were harvesting your field, you purposely had to leave some things unharvested on the ground so that the poor, the orphan, the widow um, could come along, pick those up, and use those uh, in order to have food. So gleaning was very biblical. Gleaning was God's way of making sure that the less fortunate were taken care of. So Naomi says, go glean, Ruth. Go pick up the, the, the leftovers in the field. And Ruth goes to this specific field. And, and while she's there, the owner of the field, named Boaz, sees Ruth. He's attracted to Ruth. So much so that he tells um, his guys, hey, leave a little bit more in the field. So Ruth goes to glean this field, and she has this amazing, um, you know, this, this amazing collection of food. Goes back to Naomi, and Naomi's like, what, what field did you, uh, did you pick up in? And Ruth, Ruth told Naomi about Boaz. And Naomi, who is actually, and here's the catch, related to Boaz, realizes that there might be something there. And the much deeper part of the story is that Boaz was actually Naomi's kinsman redeemer, which basically means that if, um, if a family's fortune is lost due to death, it's up to the kinsman's redeemer, the, the closest person to the deceased relative, to go and redeem that land if they choose to do so. So the, the storyline in the book of Ruth is not just about Ruth and Boaz falling in love and having a child. It's also about Boaz being a kinsman redeemer to Naomi's family and redeeming what Naomi had lost, just like God redeems us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, Naomi sees that Ruth and Boaz have a spark. Naomi proceeds to coach Ruth on how to flirt and how to court Boaz. Long story short, they fall in love. They get married and they have a child. And there's a very uh, special celebration at the end of um, the book of Ruth. If you have your Bible, turn over to Ruth 4.13 or turn over to page 127 in the story. Page 127 in the story, middle of the page, or Ruth 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. 
When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer, otherwise known as a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in an old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So this powerful scene, this resolution scene in the story of Ruth, in the story of Naomi, in the story, in the story of Boaz, the book began with Naomi losing her father, losing her two sons. It began with Ruth losing her husband. And it ended with Ruth marrying one of Naomi's um, kinsmen. And Naomi basically having a godson. And she celebrated by all the women because Naomi, who otherwise did not have a grandchild up to this point, finally had a godson. Now, Beautiful ending to a heartbreaking story. I encourage you to listen to what I'm about to read from Matthew chapter 1. I encourage you to listen to what I'm about to read from Matthew chapter 1. And before I do, let me remind you, we looked at the story of Rahab, a pagan prostitute that God used to save the Israelite spies. She became part of the Israelite um, nation, but we don't know what happened to her. Because the story said in Joshua 6, and she lives among the people to this day. And then we read the story of Ruth. Ruth and Naomi and, and Boaz. And we see God orchestrate a, a redeeming narrative through Ruth falling in love with Boaz, them having a child, and Naomi being given basically what is a godson. So now, with those reminders in mind, let me read Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. This is the genealogy of Jesus. Verse 5, Matthew 1. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Remember that name. Who did Boaz fall in love with? Ruth. But that's not what Scripture says yet. In verse 5 of Matthew 1, Scripture says, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz's mother was the pagan prostitute that rescued and hid the spies and that we saw in Joshua chapter 6 that to be continued of and she lives among the Israelites to this day. What's the to be continued for Rahab? Rahab fell in love with a man named Salmon and they had a son named Boaz. And scripture continues. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. So there is a, an extremely cool twist to the story of Rahab. Rahab falls in love with Salmon. They have Boaz. Boaz falls in love and marries Ruth. So here you have Rahab, a pagan prostitute that God used to hide the spies and, and, and assist in a very large way his plan to take the promised land. This pagan prostitute God uses to not only hide the spies, but to fall in love with a man named Salmon. They had a child named Boaz, and Boaz ended up falling in love with and marrying another pagan woman. And what's so powerful about the backstory here 
is that we already see in Scripture in the Old Testament that God is proclaiming through the story of Rahab and Ruth that His gospel, His good news, the hope of God redeeming the world through Jesus, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, it's for all people. Not just for the Israelites, not just for the Jews, but for all people. So I think, going back to Ruth 4, when it says, Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. See, I think at the end of chapter 4, and Scripture doesn't say this necessarily, but I think at the end of chapter 4 in Ruth, as Naomi is gathered around with all the women in the area and, and they're celebrating the birth of uh, Obed, I think one of the women in that circle celebrating Obed's birth was none other than the prostitute turned uh, God's assistant, Rahab. But the story gets even better because Scripture says that Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. You know what that means? That means Ruth was the great uh, grandmother of King David. And it means that, uh, I'm sorry, it means that Ruth was the grandmother of King David, and it means that Rahab was the great grandmother of King David. That's pretty stinking cool. That's pretty stinking cool. And, and one of the things that I encourage you to see is that if God can use a pagan prostitute, <coughs> I'm sorry, who woke up that morning and, and probably had no idea that she was going to encounter spies. Sorry, my throat's a little choked up here. If God can use a pagan prostitute who woke up that morning and probably had no idea that she was going to encounter spies uh, of God, I think if he can use a pagan prostitute, if he can use a pagan Moabite woman who doggedly refused to leave her mother-in-law because she loved her mother-in-law, then the truth of God's story is he can use us. He can use us. And I want to tell you just a few more things as I wind down. I pray you know that you are a character in God's story. Just like Rahab's a character, just like Ruth is a character. And, and again, Rahab goes on to be the great-grandmother of Jesus, and Ruth goes on to be the grandmother of Jesus. You are a character in God's story. Hebrews 12 says, Let us look into Jesus, the author and, and the perfecter of our faith, or the pioneer of our faith. Jesus is the author of our faith, which means that Jesus is the author of our story. You are a character in God's story. And here's something else I encourage you to know. Your role in God's story can only be played by you. You are the only one God created to be who you are, where you are at this precise moment in time. Which means that if you want to check out and you don't truly embrace the character that God is calling you to play, if you don't truly embrace the role that God is, is calling you to play in His story, God will still accomplish His purposes. God will still bring about the redemption, has brought about redemption through Jesus. But I think God's story gets even better when you're the character that He's calling you to, to play. Last thing. If you want to know what God is calling you to do, look at how God has been moving in your life to know your role. If you want to know what your character and God's story has been called to do, look at how God has been moving in your life to know your role. Uh, I'll give you an example. You know, here I am, uh, 41 years old, and, I, and I'm a preacher. I'm a pastor. Well, when I was probably four years old, we would go to my grandmother's yard, 
Well, we'd go to my grandmother's, but I would, I would go out to her yard. And the reason I would is because the yard had a uh, cut, cut down tree stump in it. And I didn't know what I was doing at four years old, but I would get out those old school metal folding chairs that had kind of like the vinyl uh, crisscross pattern on it. At least I think it was vinyl. And um, I would set out those chairs in, the, uh, in my granny's front yard and I would get up on the tree stump and I'd preach. I didn't know what I was doing. I just knew that I was trying to pretend like I was my grandfather who was a preacher. Now, is it any coincidence that here I am at 41 years old preaching and teaching the gospel? I don't think so. I think God instilled that funny um, yet precious uh, time of me preaching, I think is as an indicator that He had a plan on my life the entire time. A plan to preach and teach and proclaim the gospel. So if you want to know what role God is calling you to play, look at some of the themes in your life. Look at what you used to enjoy when you were little. And, 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 and some people may say, well, Paul, this sounds a little bit like psychology. It, it is. And I think God created psychology. And the truth is, God hardwired you a certain way because He has a role for you to play in His story. You are a character in His story. So what's your next chapter? Do you trust God to write your story? What kind of character is He calling you to play? How has God been moving in your life? And again, if He can take a pagan prostitute and use Rahab to rescue the spies, if He can take a pagan Moabite woman who, whose former mother-in-law lost her son and was heartbroken and whose future mother-in-law was Rahab, the pagan prostitute, and this foreign Moabite woman, Ruth, ends up becoming the grandmother of the king of Israel, then I beg you to know that the Lord can take you and use you to write an amazing story. So go play your character well. Amen.